Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. So we are going to return now to Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." That's a pretty solid indictment of the spiritual maturity of the church that he is writing to. In verse 11, what he's saying there is he wants to explain to them about Christ's priesthood and how it follows the order of Melchizedek, but he says it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. Now that word dull has been translated as sluggish, dull, lazy, and then the NIV translates it as since you no longer try to understand. So what he's in effect saying is you've become satisfied with your baby faith and you live according to your baby faith because it's easier that way. But because of living in that baby faith, you can't have a mature faith. You can't understand the things that are necessary to have a mature faith because you've not committed yourself to the study of God's word. Now, again, he's going to elaborate extensively anyway on the idea of Melchizedek's priesthood and its implications for Christ in chapter 7, but he pauses here to note this difficulty that he's encountering. He says they are verging toward laziness, they're verging toward lethargy, and he doesn't want them to get there. He says that Melchizedek's person and office, the history of that office, the function of that office, the purpose of that office, it's all incredibly important to what we understand about Christ, but he says that the church here may not be in a position to understand it because their minds are so sluggish. And he reminds them that they're not going to understand the truth if they don't want to understand it. And so the fundamental issue facing the readers isn't an intellectual issue. He's not saying they don't have the capacity to understand it. He's saying they don't have the moral fortitude to put themselves out there to understand it. It's a moral issue. So when we get to verse 12, he tells them that they've been Christians for so long that they ought to be able to teach others But as it stands, they still need someone to feed them the very basics. Not only do they need to understand and learn the deep mysteries of Christianity, like the priestly order of Melchizedek, but they actually need to learn the very ABCs of divine revelation. And I say that, and it sounds funny, uh, but this word, stoicheia, meaning basic principles, also means elements of nature and elementary truths, literally the ABCs. So in Greek philosophy, this is, that's really small, I'm sorry. Um, In Greek philosophy, this is used to designate the parts that make up the material world, earth, air, fire, and water. And so we see in 2 Peter, where it's used in that sense, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And then again in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, it's also used 
by Paul in Galatians chapter 4 and in other places as well um, with reference to elementary principles of the world. So you see there in verse 3, Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, the basic ideas of the world. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, again, elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Why would you go back to the foundation of worldliness, he says, when you have this much stronger and this much better foundation? So the writer takes this notion here in Hebrews of basic principles and he says, in view of the time that has elapsed since you became Christians, you ought to be taking solid food. You ought to be more mature. You ought to be capable of understanding deeper things. And indeed you are, but you are unwilling. And so you're unable to digest anything stronger than milk or the food of infants. Now again, this milk and solid food comparison seems to have gained some popularity in the early church, and it also had some popularity in Greek philosophy. Uh, we can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there Paul tells the Corinthians that for all their claim to be spiritual, they cannot be treated as such because they are fostering carnal party spirit in the church. There's factions, there are jealous, there's jealousy, there is strife, there is disagreement, and so forth. And because that exists in their midst, they must be treated as spiritual infants and fed on the milk of elementary Christian ethics. Now what Paul also says here is, I've already been here and I've already taught you all of this once, but I'm having to continue to do this again. And he goes on to say, there is further wisdom to be imparted to those who have attained spiritual maturity, who have grown in Christ, but the Corinthians are not able to handle it and understand that meat until they've grown up more. Again, he's not giving them an intellectual challenge. He's not saying you can't understand this. He's saying you won't understand it. It's a moral issue. And we see again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Now this Peter is addressing two newly converted Christians. And he tells them, like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. doesn't indicate that they should stay on spiritual milk, but it says that you should long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow. So the writer to the Hebrews then, if we take all of this and we kind of put it together, we can say that he's saying they don't have a willingness to grow, they don't have a desire to grow, they don't have uh, any concept of what it means to grow in the Christian faith, perhaps because it's too hard, perhaps because their Judaism is much easier, it's generational, it's been practiced for a long time, why would we give that up in light of what Christ has said to us? Or perhaps it's just pure laziness. They don't want to, they don't have any gumption about them, they don't have the intestinal fortitude, if you want to use that phrase, to do anything any different. And so when we get to chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, we'll see what basic principles he's talking about. But as we get to verse 13 of chapter 5, we see there in 13 and 14 the contrast between those who consume milk and those who, who consume solid food. He says, those whose diet is milk remain unacquainted with the message of righteousness. Again, he doesn't mean that they've never been taught the message of righteousness. 
as if they were ignorant of God's standards. No, they've been given it, and they've been given it, and they've been given it over and over again, but they haven't put it into practice. He says they haven't lived righteously to the extent that they should as believers in Christ. They are living as if they are still spiritual infants when in fact they should have progressed beyond that stage. Now, all of that to say that the writer's main concern isn't actually that they've never progressed beyond spiritual infancy. It's deeper than that. It's that they lack the proper desire to grow spiritually. And so they are in increased danger of falling into apostasy and rejecting that message which they have been given. And so he's telling them it's urgent that they leave spiritual infancy behind because you're always either drawing nearer to God or you're falling away from God. It's sort of the same thing that we understand when Christ tells us not to be lukewarm Christians or not to be lukewarm. No man can serve two masters. You don't get to straddle the fence and you don't get to be stagnant. You're either growing or you're falling away. And so their spiritual slackness, their laziness, is what he's concerned with. When he gets to verse 14, he tells them, if milk is for infants, then solid food is for those who are mature. Again, those items that we'll see in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, are the, are the milk items. And the solid food has to do with the teaching about Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, I don't think the writer's here, writer here is saying that's all solid food. I don't think he's, he's saying, you know, if you'll just get this one thing, you'll be spiritually mature. But he's actually saying you can't be spiritually mature because you refuse to grow to a level of understanding where this Melchizedekian priesthood will make sense to you. So those who are mature have the mind, the foundation, and the training to discern good from evil. And those who are spiritually mature have no need to relearn basic and elementary teachings. And because they understand and they know those, they're comfortable with them, and they live those elementary and basic uh, teachings, they're able to instruct others in spiritual truths. But as we approach verse 1 of chapter 6, we see that the writer insists on feeding them solid food anyway. And why? Well, because one weans an infant by feeding it adult food, or getting toward adult food at least. So the writer's purpose here is to emphasize the capacity of those who are mature enough to discern between good and evil. Those who are mature and able to discern what is good and evil perceive that returning to the Levitical cult, returning to their former Judaism, that is unenlightened by Christ, isn't the pathway of righteousness. They understand that such a move is harmful, and it's a backward move, even if it seems to be helpful. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, says it this way, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The writer says you can't have that if you lack the desire to get there. And so then we come to chapter 6, and we'll read from 1 to 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So despite everything that we've just discussed, this transition is probably surprising to us. 
because our writer has just told us that his readers are unable to digest the solid food that he would like to give them, namely this exposition of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood, because they're immature. So he transitions here with therefore. We might say that because. So because you are spiritually immature, let us leave the elementary doctrine. Now we might expect him to say nevertheless. Well, in spite of the fact. But he doesn't. He says therefore. So as the sort of cliche thing goes, what is the therefore therefore? Good, some of y'all got it. (laughs) He understands that their particular condition of immaturity is such that only an appreciation of what is involved in Christ's high priesthood is going to cure it. He says that their minds need to be stretched, and this will stretch them to their limits. And may I also say that that's why this book is so concerned with putting Christ in the context of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it is so concerned with the deeper understanding of the Levitical law. And we've been going back and forth trying to figure out what he means by sacrifices and what is the role of the high priest and so forth. These folks are so comfortable with all of that. He doesn't have to do that legwork for them. But he is having to put Christ in conversation with that to show them he is the fulfillment of the law. He is uh, the better high priest. He's better than Moses. And he's higher than the angels. So he says they've remained immature for too long. Therefore, he will give them something calculated to force them out of their immaturity. Or it will force them into the apostasy to which he thinks they're already headed anyway. At this point, when it's given to you, you either accept it or you reject it. Now that phrasing there, the elementary doctrine of Christ, brings us back to the phrase, the basic principles and oracles of God. So this indicates that the writer is concerned with a Christian understanding of the Old Testament. So beginning here and continuing through verses 2 to 3, the author gives us three pairs of foundational teaching. The first is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Then the second, teachings about washings and laying on of hands. And third, instruction about the resurrection and final judgment. Now, we don't want to say that just because these are foundational teachings, they're secondary issues or that he deems them as unimportant. But he actually is saying, you know these, you've heard these so much, I don't have to build on these. I don't have to repeat these again because you know them already and they provide the foundation for what I'm about to tell you. So when we come to this first pair, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, What we see is that he's rejecting going over the same things repeatedly. And he rejects going over the same basic teachings without any indication that the readers are grasping it. Remember we said they're not practicing what they preach. Now the NIV actually captures this conceptually better than the ESV does. There the NIV says, Therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. The works are dead in the sense that they result in death, which is both physical and spiritual. When one becomes a believer, one turns away from evil works and gives him herself over to God. And so repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're distinguishable, but they're inseparable. Salvation is given to those who put their faith in God and trust in him to deliver them on the day of wrath. 
In verse 2, he gives us the last two pairs of these elementary teachings about Christ, teachings about washing and laying on of hands and instruction about the resurrection and final judgment. Now, this first pair is, is again, hard for us to decipher because the word translated as washings may refer to the cleansing rites required in the Old Testament. And we know that such washings were practiced regularly in Judaism and in the Qumran community, again, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. And so we have some references here to them as Jewish custom. Mark chapter 7, verse 4. And when they come from the marketplace, uh, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Uh, this is Jesus on the Pharisees. Then John chapter 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10 but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the importance for washing, of washing for cleansing is hard to overestimate in Jewish circles. And it's also possible that what the writer means here is baptism, although he uses the plural of the Greek word for baptism. I didn't put it on the screen, but that plural is baptismos, now, it shares the same root as the word for baptism, which is baptisma. But the only other two places in the New Testament, well, I say the only other two. There are three other places where it's used in the New Testament, but two of those that use baptismos, Mark chapter 7, verse 4, and Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, refer to the washing as a part of Jewish ceremonial rites. The other occurrence of this word in Colossians 2.12 most likely speaks to Christian baptism. But we also know that proselyte baptism came to be practiced in Judaism. So the plural for washings here probably indicates that the readers were instructed on how Christian baptism was distinct from cleansing common in Jewish circles. And then we have the laying on of hands. Now hands were laid on in the Old Testament on people for blessing, on sacrificial animals who atoned for sin, to commission someone for service, and on one to suffer, about to suffer the death penalty. In the New Testament, hands are laid on people for blessing. They're laid on for healing. They're laid on to commission people for service, for receiving the Holy Spirit, and for receiving spiritual gifts. Now, some have tied that last one, uh, receiving spiritual gifts, back with co the commissioning of people for service. But the diversity of all of this makes it difficult to determine what the writer had in mind. If the washing is related to baptism, then maybe the laying on of hands is related to the spirit. And so it might refer to what occurs at the inception of the Christian life. That's my reading on it. You can take it for whatever you wish. And the last pair now, it clearly belongs together. It's looking forward to the final day of salvation and judgment. And the resurrection of the dead refers to the physical resurrection that will occur on the last day. Now, the resurrection of Jesus gave special importance to this doctrine in the church, but the doctrine is not new to the New Testament, or not new in the New Testament. Well, remember, it was held by the Pharisees, but not the Sadducees, and the Pharisees found in it the guarantee that Israel's ancestral hope will be realized forever. So we have Isaiah chapter 26, verse 16, O Lord, in distress they sought you, they poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them, and it goes on from there. And then Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's also an essential element in Christian preaching. I didn't make a slide for it. We all know. We preach it all the time here. So eternal judgment then refers to the final judgment on the last day. Now eternal there means that the decision is definitive. That nothing you can do about it. You can't appeal the judgment. Once the judgment is passed, once the judgment is made, end of story. There is no second chance, as Hebrews will tell us when we get to chapter 9. Now this is a strong Old Testament image again reflected in Genesis chapter 18 verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And then we see it again in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And again, this is a widely shared element of Christian teaching. The writer is not relegating these foundational issues to the back burner. Again, they're not secondary issues to him, but he thinks that they should be at the point where these teachings do not have to be elaborated on and they do not have to be defended. In some sense, he wouldn't have done what I just did. He'd have taken it for granted that they had everything they needed to interpret these and that these should be stable parts of their foundation of faith. So it was on a foundation already laid in the Old Testament then and one on which their way of life was already based, that they received the gospel. And all of these are given fresh significance in the light of the coming of Christ into the world. But the Hebrews are exposed to a subtle danger. We've already said they're intellectually lazy. They're morally lazy. And so there is this temptation or almost this gradual falling away from Christianity without feeling as though they're abandoning the central tenets of the repentance and faith denoted by the washings and the laying on of hands and the expectation of the resurrection and the judgment of the age to come because all of this is integral to the Old Testament and to a Jewish understanding of the world and of salvation. But then we get to verse 3 and the author says that he's going to proceed to build on this foundation if God permits. So on the one hand, believers are held responsible for their spiritual infancy and their immaturity. They should be able to grasp what is being taught, and he tells them this, that they're only drinking milk, and they need to hear the elementary truths of the faith repeatedly because of their own laziness and their own spiritual sluggishness. But he also acknowledges that a spiritual breakthrough will only come if God permits. That is to say, our writer is going to give his mature teaching about the Melchizedekian priesthood, but he and his readers together will advance to full growth in Christ only if it pleases God. Because spiritual maturity is given by God and is a result of his gracious work in the lives of his people. And true spiritual understanding is always a miracle. That being said, I think what the writer implies but hasn't put in here for us is they must approach this new teaching with the right heart. And so he's called them to action, and he's actually in some sense called them to repentance for their spiritual laziness and their spiritual sluggishness in order that they might approach this new teaching with a desire to grow and with a desire to understand. And it is through obedience then that God will permit their spiritual understanding. So we pick up then with verses 4 to 6. 
For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now in verses 4 to 6, we see that the reason why there is no point in laying the foundation over again is because if they do indeed fall away, the author states they cannot be again restored to repentance. So he's asserting that the true saints are the ones that are going to persevere. Those who have shared in the covenant privileges of God and then deliberately renounce them are the most difficult persons of all to reclaim for the faith. And actually, what the writer here says is it's impossible to reclaim those people. I subjected my poor mother last week to the, to the live stream of the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> we listened to it for two days. And so I'm going to share a slide from the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> Part of the initiative of the Southern Baptist Convention called Vision 2025 is to increase student baptisms. That's not, I'm not up here trying to be an apologist for that uh, mission, although I think it's a good one. But I want us to see these statistics. From 2019 through 20, I mean from 2000 through 2019, Southern Baptists are showing a continual decline in baptizing 12 to 17 year olds by 39,150 people annually, or a decrease of 42%. 20 years, 19 years, 42%. Now this is from the Barna Group. This is not from the Southern Baptist Convention. You probably can't see it. It's pretty small up here. But I want to point out three things. Practicing Christianity, practicing Christians, are down from 25, down to 25%, from 50%, in 2009 to 31 percent in 2013 and now they're down to 25 percent non-practicing Christians whatever that means remain steady at about 44 percent since 2013 I guess that's pretty easy to pull off so you can kind of keep your numbers but non-christian people who claim to be anything but Christian particularly the rise of atheism has grown to 32% from 25% in 2013. And then we get to this one that I think is probably the, maybe the scariest, although practicing Christians falling so dramatically is uh, scary. But if we look at the red line there, atheist, agnostic, or none, we see that all these other categories, legacy evangelicals, nominal Christians, non-evangelical born-again Christians, even people of other faiths, they're all falling, but the atheist, agnostic, and none category is up to 21% over the course of six years. That's the world that we live in. These are the people that we're out here trying to minister to, and it's no wonder that it's impossible. This is the United States. We like to send our missionaries all over the world, and this is right here in our back door. And what's scary further about that red line 
as the vast majority of those people are from within the walls of Christianity. They've left. They've fallen away. Now, it's not the case for the writer here or for these statistics that we've just looked at. It's not the case that God could not or would not forgive them. And it is not an excuse for us to sit on our thumbs and not go out and minister. But he says the readers here, if they repudiate Christ, are not going to have any desire to return to him, not without an act of God. So our writer sees the perseverance in faith as a marker of true faith and belief. He's almost saying if you fall away, you didn't believe to begin with. Their spiritual immaturity, however, puts these people on the cliff's edge. He says, why learn something new in Christ when I can live comfortably in my received, generationally practiced Judaism? So who is he writing to? Is he writing to non-believers or is he writing to believers? Well, considering he thinks it's impossible to get those back, I would say he's actually talking here to Christians, to lazy Christians. And so they are the ones who are those who have once been enlightened. Now the word once there, much like the word eternal, suggests a decisive event. That's naturally interpreted to be said at conversion. For at conversion, they're illuminated in that they receive the knowledge of the Lord. The same word in chapter 10, verse 32, indicates the conversion of the readers. I didn't hear a scream, so he's probably all right. Uh, now, it doesn't indicate partial enlightenment. When we see that phrase, those who have once been enlightened, that doesn't mean partial enlightenment or almost enlightenment, but it actually means a once and decisive enlightenment. They've been there, they've received it, they've gotten it. Those same people have tasted the heavenly gift. They've experienced fully the heavenly gift. Now, again, some people have tried to say that this is partial. Maybe they, they got a glimpse of salvation, but they didn't get the whole deal or whatever. But that doesn't seem to be the case because this word's already been used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, talking about Jesus' experience with death. And it doesn't say that Jesus sipped in death. It doesn't say that he dabbled in death. It says that he experienced death fully. These are people who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Again, denoting full participation. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 3, didn't put a marker for the other one, sorry. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 14. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, it's interesting how that has been translated. Because in believing, humans share a heavenly calling, and if they are truly sharers of Christ, then they persevere to the end. Again, this doesn't suggest partial or inadequate belief, but he uses expressions that designate Christian believers in the fullest sense of the word. And then there are people who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. They fully ingested the word of God by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing to suggest that this is a false reception or a superficial reception. Instead, he reminds them elsewhere, as we're going to see, time permitting, of their love and their service to the saints at the beginning. 
He doesn't cast doubts upon their reception of the word, but he warns those who initially embraced it and have since pushed away from it. And then finally, there are pe they are people who have tasted the powers of the age to come. And of course, we are comfortable seeing this distinction in the New Testament between the present age and the age to come. It's typical in the New Testament. But one of the powerful things that we often overlook is that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection means that that new age has penetrated into history. That is a moment when that new kingdom, when that new world, that restored kingdom invaded history and arrived before the end of history. So the readers are catapulted into the future age of God's reign in the midst of the present evil age. And because they have experienced God's salvation fully, they had experienced his end times blessings in a powerful way. And again, that word power suggests a real and meaningful experience, not something ineffectual. So by the time we reach verse 6 then, the danger of falling away is pretty well emblazoned on the minds of the readers. And he says, those who fall away cannot be renewed to repentance since their apostasy re-crucifies God's son and dishonors him. And now we have the final of the six descriptors, those who have then fallen away. And we have the Greek word here, parapipto. It only occurs here in the New Testament. Now it does occur in the Greek uh, Septuagint in Ezekiel. And as it is used there, it clearly indicates apostasy. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 13. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast. And then Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 8. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. Now those are not the only two times it occurs there, but those are two examples. Those who have acted faithlessly, those who have fallen away. So those people who devote themselves to iniquity will die because of their transgressions since they have repudiated the Lord and his ways. They've abandoned, for the writer's purpose, they have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the author does not accuse his readers of being in this condition. He warns them that they're approaching this condition, that they're being spiritually lazy, that they're being spiritually lax. And so he re reminds them of the importance of renewing their commitment because he's afraid that their present laziness is going to lead to this kind of apostasy. Now, Ian, it sounds like you're saying that those who are saved can fall away from God. You sound like a really bad Baptist this morning. Uh, that they can commit apostasy and reject their salvation. So doesn't that fly in the face of once saved, always saved? No. It is true that believers can fall away not away from their salvation, but they can fall out of the will of God and can suffer his earthly punishment. Those of you who are, are mothers and fathers know that you are no harsher a critic of anybody than yourself and your own children because you have expectations for them and you have desires for them and you desire their best and so naturally you'll do what it takes to protect them. So you can fall out of the will of God and you can suffer his earthly punishment. But what I'm saying here about the writer is simply that these warnings are a means to, uh, to preserve the Christian to the end. God will protect us from the final judgment because of our faith. 
in our belief in Christ, but we also must exhibit a life and commitment to him that ref reflects our faith in our belief in Christ. Because he says, if we are true believers, then we ought not to forsake the faith that we have tasted. And if we do forsake this faith, then we have to wonder whether or not we were truly saved at all. But then he goes on to suggest that a person who is comfortable with his rejection of the faith is equally a person who is unconcerned with the state of his soul. So the laziness and the sluggishness of the people the writer is addressing occupies the same frame of mind as the person who is unconcerned by their eternal state. And we get to verses 7 to 8. He compares such people to the land, which in spite of all the care expended in its cultivation, refuses to produce a good crop. And then he further compares those believers who persevere in faith to fertile land, which produces fruit, while those in whose lives the fruit of righteousness do not appear are compared to land which will never produce anything but thorns and thistles. So the reference at the end of the judgment is confirmed by the words, and its end is to be burned. The land itself is fruitless, it's worthless, and it's going to be burned. The threat is eternal punishment. And then we move to our last verses for this morning, verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So now he gives us some help in understanding the warning that he's just given. First, he reassures his readers that he does not believe that, there are, that they are apostates, nor does he believe that there are apostates among them. This is the only place in the letter where the writer refers to them as beloved or beloved. We saw that a lot in John, John's letters. Uh, this is the only time we'll see it here in Hebrews. Now, the language here might strike you as contradictory to his earlier admonitions about spiritual maturity. But what the writer is saying is there are fruits in the life of this church which exhibit that the church is a saved church, whether they are spiritual infants or they're spiritually mature. They bear witness that the people in whom they appear are genuine heirs of salvation. And in verse 10, he tells them that even though they are spiritually immature, God is not going to forget the work and love of the readers manifested in their past and current ministry to fellow believers. Whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done unto me also. Deeds of kindness done to the people of God are reckoned by God as done to himself, and they are surely going to receive their reward from him. Now, this is a twofold compliment. It's a very forward compliment, and it's a very backhanded compliment, because on the one hand, he shows that God will bless those who are doing the kingdom work, regardless of their personal commitment to their spiritual growth. But on the other hand, he's showing, as we're going to see when we uh, get through verses 11 and 12, that their laziness is why he gives them the warning to begin with. They're on the precipice of destruction despite the zeal and love that first characterized their Christian life. We don't have time this morning, but if you want to uh, turn to the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation and look at the church of Laodicea, you're going to see the same warnings given to them there. So then we get to verses 11 and 12, and we see there that they should recover the eagerness of their former days as believers and imitate those who inherited the promises through faith and patience. Here the author anticipates 
chapter 11, which many of us know is the Hall of Faith, where he gives many examples of those who trusted God in the midst of their difficulties. Now these are eschatological promises, promises that will be obtained on the final day. But the promises are reserved for those who endure in the faith. And the writer here says initial faith does not guarantee the reception of promise if they do not believe until the end. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Mercedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.